I would like to ask you a very important question. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Greg Kokel here on Stand to Reason. And uh, thank you for uh, listening in today and being part of our show. I am really looking forward to the next three hours, especially the first one. My, uh, my goal here on Stand to Reason, of course, is to give you a piece of my mind. And generally, we open the lines so that you can give me a piece of yours on the important issues of life, ethics, values, and religion. My conviction, of course, Christianity is worth thinking about, and that's what we try to give you here every Sunday from 2 until 5. Um, I always enjoy it, though, when I can have someone else that can uh, kind of do the heavy lifting and the thinking along with me, uh, especially somebody who knows more, a lot more about their area of expertise um, than I do. You know, the new atheists like Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennett, uh, Sam Harris, they have fired a broadside of Christianity, and, and we've been responding to that over the last couple of years. Uh, but the atheists, uh, that crowd has not been entirely alone because uh, sometimes it's the most unsettling challenges come from someone who was formerly on, the, on our side, on the inside, as it were. We expect uh, kind of the Enlightenment atheist types to take a shot at our views, uh, it's painful, though, when somebody who's kind of on the inside then changes their views, and their voice seems to have a lot more impact uh, or compelling uh, a sound to it than those who have always been uh, taking exception with this. And that's the, the case with Bart Ehrman, uh, Distinguished Professor of Biblical Studies at University of Chapel, uh, of Chapel Hill in North Carolina. Uh, I have talked in the past, by the way, about what I have referred to as the big chill, you know, that feeling you get when you see a, a prominently displayed title in the bookstore, like uh, misquoting Jesus, the story behind who changed the Bible and why. And then you see that and you wonder, well, what does that guy know that I don't know? Or maybe even what has my pastor been keeping from me? And then you feel the big chill if you're a follower of Christ, oftentimes, and then you think, oh, I don't want to know what, what he knows that I don't know, because that might hurt my my faith, and then you just walk past it. Of course, that's not the right way to deal with those things, and that's one of the reasons Stand to Reason is here. Um, there are, is no question that these guys are clever writers, been pounding Christianity pretty hard, but Proverbs gives some good advice at this point. The first to plead his case seems just until another comes and examines him. In other words, you can hear these guys first on, and they're rhetorically clever, they're educated, they're academically um, uh, gifted, and you listen to them, they say, boy, that really sounds compelling. But wait, what about one of our guys from the other side who is in a position to do an assessment of what they say? Well, what do they say about the arguments offered by people like Bart Ehrman? And um, that's that's the situation we have today. Uh, my guest is actually somebody who knows Airman, who studied with him, and more significantly is well acquainted with the challenges that Bart Ehrman has offered, um, especially in his latest book, uh, Jesus Interrupted, Revealing the Hidden Contradictions in the Bible and Why We Don't Know About Them. It's a provocative title, isn't it? Um, he knows, my guest knows the ins issues inside and out. He's professor of uh, New Testament for doctoral studies at Asbury Theological Seminary. Uh, he's on the doctoral faculty at St. Andrews University in Scotland. Uh, he's been on the History Channel on NBC, ABC, CBS, CNN, Discovery Channel, A&E. 
Uh, he's written over 30 books, including the Jesus Quest and the Paul Quest, and uh, these are both selected as top biblical studies uh, study works uh, by Christianity Today. Uh, he's most recently written, What Have They Done With Jesus?, Beyond Strange Theories and Bad History, Why We Can Trust the Bible. And uh, I give you his bona fides there because I want you to realize how how deep this gentleman goes into the issues that we're going to speak on today. Um, his name is Dr. Ben Witherington III. Uh, ben, welcome to the show. Good to be with you. You know, Ben, we have run into each other, I think, a couple of times at an event or two. I don't know that we talk very much, but I think this is actually the first time you've been on the show which means uh, your visit here is long overdue, I think. Uh, well, thanks. Actually, I think I have been on the show before, but it's been a long time. Well, you know, one of the things I've appreciated about you uh, over time is that you are, I'm kind of a generalist, you are, you know, a specialist in this broad area that's really come under attack by people like um, uh, Bart Ehrman, and he's not the only guy, but I think he's, his, his critique is especially withering, if you pardon what appears to be a pun, uh, to believers because of his, at least initial role, as being on the inside. I mean, he was a, a, a student along with you in theological studies, as I understand. Is that right? Well, uh, we were. he's much younger than me, actually. And so uh, when I studied at Princeton, he was not there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was there long before him. But the real oddity of this is, that Bruce Metzger, whom he did his doctoral work with, right. is the person I studied with at Princeton. Yeah, the, probably the greatest uh, New Testament uh, documentary critic, you know, of the 20th century. As uh, I absolutely. Understand. But the really odd, odd thing is that uh, in the 70s, Bruce Metzger asked me to do a uh, theological Ph.D. thesis on Didymus the Blind. Mm -hmm. And I said, uh, no, I, I think I'll do something else. So I did women in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it took him another 10 years before Bart Ehrman came along and actually did his Ph.D. thesis on Didymus the Blind. So that's, that's a connection. But the other is also that I'm a graduate of the University of North Carolina, mm -hmm. and I really wouldn't be a Christian today if it weren't for the person uh, well before Bart Ehrman who was sitting in the James A. Gray Chair of Biblical mm -hmm. Studies at Carolina. So, mm -hmm. uh, yes, I do have a dog in this fight. Okay, well, well, first broad question, and, and uh, by the way, I, I want to mention your blog site because I have been reading your uh, missives from your blog in preparation for our conversation, and I've got to say, first of all, it is your responses are really theologically and academically and, and uh, historically very satisfying to me. I mean, you, you really... Sounds like you did your homework. You've got a great way of writing, and and you're a nice guy too to the opposition. In this case, case Bart Ehrman, you don't come across like a flaming fundamentalist. So uh, my hat's off to you on that. Well, thanks. Uh, the uh, website, by the way, for people who want to go there, I'm looking for it here. It's www.benwitherington. Actually, spelled just the way it sounds, right, Ben? Mm -hmm. Benwitherington.com, and you can draw from that on a regular basis as new things are coming up, and Ben is, uh, Dr. Witherington is weighing in on those things on the air. First broad question here. Uh, you've written a book generally What they that's, that's titled What Have They Done With Jesus? And it's a, it's a broad treatment to deal with a lot of these kinds of challenges. Right. Uh, I'm interested today principally in, in specifically answering the issues that Bart Ehrman brings up in Jesus Interrupted, his third book on uh, on the issue, the broad issue of, of attacking Christianity. Um, have you... S ever seen such a flurry of challenges on a popular level 
to God and Christianity and the Bible as we have seen in the last few years? I mean, from Dan Brown to Chris Hitchens to Sam Harris and, and Bart Ehrman. I mean, what's going on here? Well, I think what has happened is that as our culture has become increasingly less nominally Christian and and in some cases more and more antagonistic towards Christianity, mm-hmm. uh, there has been a growing appetite for things that try to discredit uh, the Judeo-Christian tradition in general or in specific. Uh, there used to be no such appetite. I- I'll give you a good example. In the 1970s, Elaine Pagels first pu- published her little book on the Gnostic Gospel, right. suggesting they would be, you know, um, they should be seen as on a par with or close to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mm-hmm. Whereas my view would be Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John stick with them, and you can't go wrong. Right. Um, and in as, the as the 70s, most ancient, as the most ancient uh, right. uh, testimonies to and the life our of most Jesus. reliable right. evidence for the historical Jesus. Uh, in the seventies, her book was savagely critiqued by scholars and lay people alike. I mean, she was pilloried by mm-hmm. by major scholars like Raymond Brown, who wrote this huge rebuttal in the New York Times in the seventies. Right. Well, if you go fast forward twenty years later. Here's Elaine Pagels again, still flogging the Gnostic Gospels, mm-hmm. new edition of the same book. Right. Right? And now it's exclaimed as, oh, new revelation, and now we're learning all about Jesus, right. things we didn't know, and he married Mary Magdalene, and yada, mm-hmm. yada, yada. And, uh, you know, this is not new news to scholars who know the field. Mm-hmm. What's happened is that the, uh, the audience's appetite for believing such stuff has changed dramatically over the last 20 or 30 years. Yeah, I suspect, too, that their ability to assess it, just their native capability to assess some of these challenges has gone way, way, way down. A- absolutely, that's right. I would say we're in a place now where we are a Jesus-haunted culture that's biblically illiterate. Yeah. And when you're in that place, anything will pass for knowledge of mm-hmm. Jesus. Anything yeah. will pass for knowledge of mm-hmm. Jesus. And so you've got these books coming out now with these challenging titles. And look at I don't mind the challenge at all. You know, no. I, I mentioned earlier, Ben, that you know Christianity is worth thinking about. Let's let's put on our thinking caps and let's do the hard work. Um, I don't mind the challenges, but the challenges are so rhetorically uh, wound up in a certain sense. And at the same time, are uh, and I think that the, uh, the that the average reader don't see that they're poorly argued and they're poorly substantiated. But even the the Christian who ought to know better, um, as I mentioned, the big chill you know comes over them. They don't want to look at it because they're afraid it's going to hurt their faith. And, and those that read it, they end up experiencing that because they don't know how to assess these things. So, well, and the other part of this is that that's really important about postmodern Christianity is a disconnect between the importance of history and spirituality. And and so, you know, people, even Christians, think, okay, well, I've got my faith, it's a personal matter, it's right. an inward thing, and, you know, well, so what if some of these historical claims are not true? No big deal. But mm-hmm. the problem, of course, is that Christianity, like Judaism, is a historical religion. Right. It stands or falls on certain historical events mm-hmm. and their interpretation. So, uh, I mean, we're in a really squirrely place, even within the Church. The Church itself is becoming Gnostic in that it is devaluing history mm-hmm. uh, in, in, and replacing it with a very sort of um, narcissistic spirituality, mm-hmm. and that's not helpful. Yeah, one person called it uh, a moralistic therapeutic deism. 
And, uh, and, and you're right. Okay, so let's get down to the details here because I want to talk about some of the specific challenges that Bart Ehrman has raised here. Sure. And your points, uh, your general points are, are really valuable in assessing not just Bart Ehrman, but also in dealing with lots of other people who make the same uh, kinds of challenges. Let, tell us something about Bart Ehrman's general appeal to scholarship. Things like, well, the majority of scholars for the last hundred years basically agree with me. And this right. is a theme throughout his book. Now, here's, here's one of the things that I would say about that. If you were to attend uh, the national meeting of the Society of Biblical Literature today, mm-hmm. oh, five or 6,000 scholars come, all right? Now, if you put a, up a spectrum of scholarship from radical, liberal, uh, moderate, very moderate, conservative fundamentalist. There's your spectrum, okay? Mm-hmm. Where would Bart Ehrman be on the spectrum? Well, he would be at the radical end of the spectrum. And if you were to ask how many scholars are actually there on that place in the spectrum, in the whole guild of the Society of Biblical Literature, mm-hmm. I'd say it's less than 5%. Mm-hmm. So, so first of all, the whole notion that he represents the consensus opinion is a myth. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a myth. So, so that's point number one. Point, point number two is he is retreading old, tired arguments that have been argued and argued over the last 50 years. Mm-hmm. But you see, uh, the lay audience doesn't know this. Mm-hmm. this. This is all terrible new news they've not heard yeah, before. It, it's such a chuckle when you see these subtitles, like the, the new evidence see, that, that has been kept from you or you know recent discoveries With, demonstrate. And, well, it's feeding into our whole culture's love of conspiracy theories mm-hmm. at this point. You know, the man's been holding us down, somebody snookered us with, the truth has been suppressed. Yeah, the Dan it's Brown the, approach. Exactly. It's yeah. the same kind of silliness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here's the funny part, okay? Bart is reliant mainly on what I would call old German liberal theories about early Christianity, the formation of the Gospels, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. The truth of the matter is that the Biblical Studies Guild has moved on from the insights of Rudolf Bultmann and Martin DeBalius mm-hmm. and Walter Bauer and all these people that Ehrman relies on for his critique of moderate to conservative Christianity. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the truth of the matter. So there's a uh, sense that he's depending on old scholarship that has correct. already been spoken to and answered, and there's a whole raft of new scholarship, even uh, among those who don't share our own convictions about Jesus and Christianity. Still, as they come to the text, they have a, a much more, um, in a sense, archaeologically and historically refreshed approach to this material. What's interesting to me is that most of the Jewish biblical scholars, and there are some Jewish New Testament scholars, think that Bart Ehrman is out to lunch, that, that he's wrong on the history, that he's wrong in his assessment of earliest Christianity, he's wrong in the theological interpretation of the data. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, it's not like it's just conservative Christians, you know, bleeding right. and saying, oh, woe is us, or yeah. picking on us. And, you know, the truth of the matter is he's been strongly critiqued uh, right across the board uh, of scholarship. I mean, there are liberals who critique him, moderates who critique him, conservatives mm-hmm. who critique him. Well, he's not the least bit provisional in his conclusions either. When oh, he... no. Of course not. Because, I mean, he's been busy trying to exercise the demons of his fundamentalist past mm-hmm. for a long time. And uh, what's really odd about Bart Ehrman, and especially when he starts trying to deal with what, what he sees as 
contradictions in the biblical text, mm-hmm. is he gives the text a very flat reading, mm-hmm. like a fundamentalist would. Mm-hmm. I mean, he doesn't take into consideration uh, the way ancient biographies were written, the way ancient historical monographs were written, uh, various other contextual issues. He just says, okay, compare this text to this text. Yeah. Oops, they look different. That must be a contradiction. Right, Boom. Right. Now, you know, the thing that I find so bizarre about this is that he knows better. He knows perfectly well that ancient historians didn't write exactly like modern ones mm-hmm. do, and ancient biographers didn't write exactly like He knows this perfectly well. Who doesn't know this is his audience. He's playing to the audience. Well, the question I have on that comment, though, is, is you're actually quite charitable to him on your blog posts where you say, I think this is a guy who, you know, loves the truth and is trying to do the best he can to understand reality, you know, and the evidence on the one hand. But on the other hand, it, it does appear as you even as I read my work with, a, you know, a semi-critical, I mean, his work with a semi critical eye, I, I know what to look for a little bit, but I don't see the kinds of things that you see, is what I mean. And, and these these kind of kind of inept comments just jump right out at me. You, you wonder, how could a guy who is who is uh, honest in his search make such blunders, and now you're suggesting that maybe he's taking advantage of an unsuspecting audience? Well, here's what I think. I think he's an evangelist for his point of view. Mm-hmm. And he knows there are critiques of his point of view, but he's going to rhetorically argue his case uh, with as much vigor as he can do. Mm -hmm. You know, he's like a preacher who gets to a point in his sermon where in the side of the margin of his notes, where he says, I'm not quite sure about this, pound the pulpit hard. Pound the podium, right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, So, I mean, I think, I don't think that Bart Ehrman is a dishonest person. Mm -hmm. I do not think that's true. What I do think is that I think he's confused, mm-hmm. you know, and, and there, the truth of the matter is that most of the people who have critiqued him at a popular level, not at a technical level now, at a popular level, are not as good a writers as he is, mm-hmm. for a start. Yeah. Or, secondly, the, the nature of the critique is, is such that, um, you know, it's, it's missing the fundamental mark of, what are the real issues here? Well, there's, there's something that I noted in your writing that I, I deeply appreciate as a, um, a critical thinker myself who cares about the issue of truth and being careful about the facts. And the point that you make is that sometimes fundamentalists uh, are really, really big targets because they abuse the text right. on the conservative side in ways that, in, in a sense, parallel ways that Bart Ehrman abuses the text um, on, shall we say, the more liberal in the, in the sense of his theological take on the, the reliability of the text on his side. And so that there are equal kinds of errors in, instead of sometimes giving the nod, as you do, uh, to Bart Ehrman. You say, well, you know, he's got a point here. There, there is an apparent contradiction. There is a problem. There is debate about this. Now, of course, Ehrman doesn't give that charitable perspective. He acts like his point is assured. But by the same token, you're careful to say from the other side, no, it isn't like we can just do our own Mickey Mouse treatment on here to make this problem go away we got this is something we got to work at and i well, find that i find that refreshing as a as a christian apologist myself well here's what i think you know and and I, one of the things i do appreciate you about your show is that you are urging people to study to find themselves approved that it requires homework to understand the bible mm-hmm. uh, because the bible is from a very different world and a very different culture in a very very different time and if you don't study in it 
it, it's in it in its various contexts, you're you're going to twist the text. You're mm-hmm. going to misunderstand the text, or you're going to read all kinds of modern ideas right. into the text that aren't there. Yeah, uh, this is a serious problem with airmen. I, when I come back from break in just a moment, I, I want to focus a little bit more in and there because there's a problem with airmen that really, uh, you know, applies to a lots of different people, including some on our own side here. Just one reflection, though, before I go to break, I like your response from, uh, ironically, and you commented uh, a few moments ago about uh, Airman's approach that he's got the inside scoop and he's got the new scholarship and he's the guy in the know and everybody else has been, uh, you know, kind of duped, uh, the implication there at least. When it turns out you... As you mentioned, he really represents a a very small sliver of scholarship on one extreme end, and it turns out that his own approach is not informed by the best and most recent information. The irony is is that he kind of opens up his book, you know, and talks about a seminarian's introduction to the Bible, kind of suggesting that you know most seminarians they they they, they just learn their stuff at the seminary and they take a devotional approach and they're right. really not hip to what's going on. Right. And I just don't think that that is an accurate assessment of what goes on in Christian seminaries nowadays. No, they, it's not. Given the critical uh, challenges that uh, seminarians face from the outside, no, I think that's very unfair. Uh, you know, and I, I think it it does a great disservice to the whole nature of seminary education, which is, of course, to raise the consciousness of mm-hmm. of folks uh, so that they will be able to put a, uh, read the Bible in its original context. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's exceedingly unfair. Yeah, so the irony is is that he is the one that's guilty of not being up to date and speaking out of his ken, as it were, and uh, in your blog posts and also in your writings like What Have They Done With Jesus, which book, by the way, is not a direct response to Airmen, but it's meant to deal with a lot of different challenges like the ones that Airmen brings up. Uh, in, in any event, the blog posts, you deal more specifically with these things, and we'll talk about that. Uh, did we just lose you, Doctor? No, I'm here. Oh, okay. Uh, every once in a while, somebody gets deep sixth and we got to come back to you but this uh we got a break right now uh talking with ben witherington the third uh his book most recently what have they done with jesus beyond strange theories and bad history why we can trust the bible i said most recently you've probably written a couple of since then because i understand you're very prolific but uh um, professor new testament doctoral studies at asbury theological seminary and very qualified uh to answer the challenges from bart ehrman's book jesus interrupted and others like it we'll come back to uh, uh dr witherington in just a moment i'm greg kokel the show is stand to reason i have a suggestion for you pick up the phone and dial 1-800-2-REASON that's stand to reason's toll-free number ask us to send you solid ground then leave your name and address it's that simple let me tell you what this is for if you call us we're going to send you our bi-monthly publication solid ground free for a year this is no ordinary newsletter you'll receive practical concise useful tools to be an ambassador for christ in Solid Ground, Greg Hochul will help you deal with issues like abortion, evolution, cloning, homosexuality, doctor-assisted suicide, something timely so you're not caught by surprise and embarrassed when you want to stand up as an ambassador on key issues you will be challenged on. So call us right now at 1-800-2-REASON and ask for Solid Ground. We'll send it to you absolutely free. Or go to our website at str.org and ask for Solid Ground. While you're at it, you can download some of the over 300 free reports you'll also find there. That's 1-800-2-REASON and on the web, str.org. We are ambassadors for Christ. That's what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.20. 
An effective ambassador has three essential skills. First, an ambassador must have the basic knowledge necessary for his task. Second, this knowledge must be deployed in a skillful way. There's an element of wisdom, a tactical and artful diplomacy that makes his message persuasive. Third is character. His personal maturity and individual virtue will either make or break his message. Stand to Reason's mission is to help you develop the foundational skills in each one of these areas. In Essential Ambassador Skills, Greg Kokel will train you in all three of these areas to be an effective ambassador for Christ and to represent God's message of grace in a broken world. To order this unique message, call 1-800-2-REASON or go to our website, str.org. 800-2-REASON or str.org to order Essential Ambassador Skills by Greg Kokel. Greg Kokel with you here, giving you something worth thinking about every weekend of Stand a Reason. Two to five, our new time, three, three hours a week. By the way, if you miss a show, you miss an hour, uh, str.org is the location for the blog, or rather the uh, podcast. You can, we'll, we'll ship it to you every week. Glad to do so. Uh, my guest right now, Dr. Ben Witherington, you might recognize his name because he's authored more than 30 books. Uh, his specialty is New Testament and uh, specifically written quite a bit about the, uh, the historical reliability of the New Testament and understanding them in their proper light. Uh, we're responding uh, with Ben Witherington right now to Bart Ehrman's claims uh, in his book, Jesus Interrupted, which uh, is subtitled Revealing the Hidden Contradictions in the Bible and Why We Don't Know About Them. Um, you know, you get the impression from reading the subtitle, Ben, that uh, uh, Bart is going to turn us on to a whole bunch of contradictions nobody ever saw before, but I didn't see much new when I read th- through his material. No, there really isn't. And, uh, you know, the um, part of the oddity of this is, I mean, when you actually read Bart's book on Jesus, he has a Jesus book in which he describes what he claims a historian can know about the historical Jesus. Mm -hmm. The oddest thing about that whole thing is basically he takes the exact same line that Albert Schweitzer took Mm. at the beginning, the very beginning of the 20th century. century. And uh, so Jesus is a deluded, apocalyptic seer who thinks the world is going to end next week, uh, he goes up to Jerusalem to try to turn the wheel of time and bring it to an end. But, of course, that fails to happen when he dies, and that's sort of the end of the Jesus story. Mm-hmm. Now, the truth of the matter is that Schweitzer has been thoroughly critiqued, dismembered, <laughs> mm-hmm. disassembled, and is even faux pas in German scholarship mm-hmm. uh, these days. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it has been for a long time. So uh, what he is trying to put in the place of a solid historical view of Jesus is very old news, and his arguments about the differences in the Gospels are equally old news that have had 
answers for years and decades. Mm-hmm. This is nothing new. Um, you mentioned a couple of problems with his overall approach, with his methodology, and these are problems that others have had. Um, maybe uh, I can just read a short piece here that I just kind of grabbed at random, and it just jumped out at me. This is his comment uh, about the problems in the birth narratives, particularly about the, uh, the, the innocents that were slaughtered by King Herod. And here's the statement. In terms of the historical record, I'm quoting now from page 32 of Bart Ehrman's book, in terms of the historical record, I should also point out that there is no account in any ancient source whatsoever about King Herod slaughtering children in or around Bethlehem or any place else. Now, here's what stri- close quote. What strikes me odd about this, Ben, is that we do get this account from an historical source, an ancient historical source. It's called the gospel. And, well, and why and, is it that he doesn't count this just out of the gate as even credible? Well, n- not only that, the ultimate irony is that Josephus tells us he killed various of his own children to prevent them from usurping his throne. So give us a break here. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has a character record in Josephus's Antiquities, right. and the character that's revealed in Josephus is perfectly in accord with that story. He mm-hmm. he was a paranoid schizophrenic, is what Herod the Great was. He killed various of his wives. Sure. He, he exiled various of his children. This is perfectly in character with him. And the other thing we know is that he had a bunker, like Hitler's bunker, in Bethlehem mm. himself, called the Herodium, where he would run away and hide if somebody he thought was really dangerous was coming after him. Hmm. This man was paranoid, absolutely paranoid. The, the main thing I'm getting to here, though, is that it's as if... Uh, Matthew doesn't exist. Yeah. Matthew doesn't exist, right. It's, 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 it's as if the, the gospel accounts, I've seen this with others, if it's in the Bible, that's not a source. Right, it's, exactly. It's only a source if it's corroborated by some other source, and then what's important is not the biblical record, but the corroboration itself. And, and it's almost as if guilty until, pro- or guilty until proven innocent well, kind of in, approach. Well, in addition to which, it's an argument from silence. The argument is essentially this. Okay, Matthew says this, but nobody else directly says this, mm-hmm. therefore it must not be the case. Yeah. You know, now that's that is an argument from silence. Mm-hmm. It's not an argument from evidence. It, you may not like the evidence in Matthew, but let's look at the evidence just for a second to give you a good example of what's wrong with this kind of arguing. First of all, Bethlehem was a one stoplight town. It's smaller than Wilmore, Kentucky, where my seminary is, oh. okay? <laughs> it is a one stoplight town in Jesus's day. Mm-hmm. There was no wayside end there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we sorry, go on. Char- apologies to Charlie Brown on that one. Uh, I, I'm sorry, but <laughs> the truth of the matter is that that we're not talking about more than I don't know four or five children under the age of two. Mm-hmm. So all of the medieval art where we've got thousands of children lying in the street being yeah. slain and all of that. I mean, what what the critique is is you know. If there was this massive slaughter of the innocents, why haven't we heard of it elsewhere? Mm -hmm. I'll tell you why. Because it was such a small, insignificant event that it was unnecessary to report it, because life was cheap in the ancient world. 
Well, there's something else here that's uh, that you just suggested essentially, and I've thought about in this thing in this particular incident, and it, that is, it kind of presumes that you had CNN, NBC, ABC, uh, BBC, and everybody else kind of strolling around the landscape looking for um, uh, sla- slaughters of people to report. Uh, when, in fact, there are all kinds of things that happen at gr- much greater magnitude that never got reported at all because there wasn't this mechanism, this news mechanism in place. And this goes to the broader question, it seems to me, of, as you put it, anachronistically taking modern views of uh, news reporting and history and scholarship and try to importing though, and importing those kind of values into to analysis of ancient documents. Well, Absolutely. And, and it's, it's just as bad when a scholar like Bardurman does that as it is when a fundamentalist does that. It's, what would be an it's example the of same a, kind of problem. What would be an example of a fundamentalist doing Well, uh, in Revelation 6, uh, we hear that the angels will come from the four corners of the earth mm-hmm. um, when God calls for them. Mm-hmm. Okay? Now, a fundamentalist would read that and say, aha, the world cannot be round. It must have four corners mm-hmm. because... That's what the Bible says. You're saying well, you mean fundamentalist in the terms of a wooden literalist who is just I reading would, absolutely one inch deep, wooden right. li- literalist. I've actually right. run into people like this in huh. the mountains of North Carolina right. that are flatlanders. Uh-huh. Now, <clears throat> the problem is that the, it's not that they didn't take the text seriously. The problem is that the information that the author wanted to give us, John of Patmos in this case, uh, was not cosmology. Right. It was theology. He wanted to tell us that God's angels will come from all corners mm-hmm. of the earth. That's, that's the whole point. Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, the literalist reads metaphor as if it were literal, mm-hmm. reads poetry as if it were prose. Mm-hmm. I, I could just keep going down the line. Now, the thing that amazes me is that Bart Ehrman does the same thing. Mm-hmm. Now, that's that's bizarre. He knows better. He knows we have to interpret literature according to the literary type or genre it is. Mm-hmm. He knows this. So how is it, what, was the, the, what are some of the differences, um, say, of ancient historiography, uh, particularly you know, the kinds of things that the Gospels are in terms of a record of a life, as opposed to the kind of biographies or history that is recorded in the standards today, and why does that make a difference in the way Ehrman uh, approaches this whole project? Okay, first of all, um, we as modern people with Uh, watches and clocks and cell phones, are preoccupied with precision in regard to time, okay? Ancient people were not. They didn't walk around with little sandals on their wrists, okay? (laughs) They were perfectly happy to say, it'll happen after a while, okay, and without being precise. Mm -hmm. And so what happens with our penchant for chronological precision is we bring that to the biblical text, and we go nuts. I'll give you a good example that Bart himself points out. In regard to the predictions of the Passion, mm-hmm. some of them say, on the third day, Jesus will rise. Mm-hmm. Okay. Others say, after three days, he will rise. Oh, no, we've got a contradiction. Mm. Now, here's the deal. Um, the phrase, after three days, in early Judaism and even before early Judaism in the Old Testament, simply means after a while. Mm -hmm. That's all it means. It does not mean three 24-hour days. 
Whereas, if you wanted to be precise, you would say on the third day, mm-hmm. and even then, that's not precise. It doesn't say when on the third day. Mm-hmm. In any case, so it's an idiom but, basically that just means in a while. Yeah, it was short. like my when my grandfather, I'd ask him, "When are we going to the candy store?" and he'd say, "Directly." That meant after a while. <laughs> so you see, the that's kind of like the word conclusion in a preacher's preacher uh, unfortunately. song. Unfortunately, yeah, that, that, that's right. My point is this: that we need to take time references in the Bible according to the way they used time references in antiquity. Mm-hmm. And different peoples had different ways of counting times. I mean, the Romans counted from midnight to midnight. Mm-hmm. Jews counted from sundown to sundown. I could go on. Yeah, like the but third you, hour could be nine in the morning. It could be three in the morning. Correct. Mm-hmm. Absolutely it could be. That's mm-hmm. exactly right. I mean, that's just one small example, but that's what we do. We read the text as modern persons, assuming that our conventions were the ancient conventions, mm-hmm. when more often than not, they weren't. Mm-hmm. Now, another good example of this would, would be this, that ancient people were more concerned about getting the gist of a story and telling the gist of what somebody said rather than specifically what they said, okay? Mm-hmm. So one of the things you have to do with ancient historical works and ancient biographical works is you have to allow these authors uh, the right to paraphrase and rephrase things Mm -hmm. in their own language because there were no tape recorders. Yeah, it's not Memorex, as one author put it. And most people did not have exhaustive photographic memories, Mm -hmm. even then, okay? Mm -hmm. So uh, everybody knew this about ancient historical works and ancient biographical works. So I'm simply saying, when you know that about ancient persons, when they want to be general, let them be general. When they want to be specific, they'll be specific, okay? But they're less concerned with specificity of quoting mm-hmm. and referring to things than we are. So, in other words, again, this is kind of repeating the same ground that we've just covered, but I don't want people to miss it. We, we, we have to judge those writers by their standards of precision and accuracy, Absolutely. not by our own. Well, correct. If an author intends to just generally tell us something... We cannot fault him and claim that he's wrong by saying he wasn't specific, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, or misreading a generality as if it were saying mm-hmm. something specific. Well, look That's at the, an equally big mistake. The, the whole thing about Peter's denials and the cock crowing how many times. You well, know, exactly. He makes, he makes a, Ervin makes a big deal about that. Yes, and, and which is a joke, because, uh, and here's why. The ancient historian would say this. Uh, How many times did Jesus deny Peter? Well, Matthew says three. Mark says three. John says three. Luke says three. Survey says three times, right? And he did that in relationship to what? A cock crowing, all right? So what the historian is concerned about is the threefold denial in some kind of relationship to cocks crowing, okay? That's the historical McNugget mm-hmm. that is of concern. <laughs> now, how each of those gospel writers presents that, edits that, or tells that story is up to them. They have a freedom, we would say, under inspiration, to tell the story the way they want to In tell it, words, without, right. without leaving out the essential historical information. Okay? Uh, and and so, uh, I mean, I remember a day when there was a book by Harold Lenzel called The Battle for the Bible. Right. 
And he was a secular historian who was also a devout, very conservative Christian. And when he came to this same story, guess how many denials of Christ by Peter he came up with <laughs> trying to harmonize them using right. modern methods? Right. Six denials of Christ by Peter. Mm -hmm. This is hilarious. No gospel says that. There's not a single gospel that says that. Well, it's interesting you write in your own blog post, in fact, if Peter denied Christ three times before the cock crowed at all, then he certainly denied Christ three times before the cock crowed twice. Well, exactly. So this is like straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. But uh, it's the kind of point that I see that Bart Ehrman and others like him make all of the time. They're trying to, and I don't know if they're trying to go, what they think they're doing is going after inerrancy or whatever, but it strikes oh, yeah. to me whether, whether he did it after the cock crowed twice or once or how many times the significant thing for the historical account is the denial of peter and right. uh and that salient detail is not erased if you don't get the numbers of the cock crows right well exactly and in any case i don't think any of those gospel writers were terribly concerned whether a cock crowed one two or 23 times in the night right. we all know that they don't just crow once yeah so I don't think that's the issue. The issue is the horrible denial. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk when we come back after break here, uh, Ben, about um, about the skepticism that uh, people like Ben Ehr Bart Ehrman bring to the enterprise here, uh, and how that colors this, the, their whole approach. Um, my my guest is Ben Witherington the uh, third. He is uh, an expert on these things, these matters. We're talking a little bit about Bart Ehrman's book Jesus Interrupted, and really, in more general sense, about many others who have written like this, finding all of these contradictions, um, and in that sense, trying to discredit the Bible. We'll be back with more when we return on Stand to Reason. Stay with us, friends. In Second Corinthians, Paul calls every Christian an ambassador for Christ, and that's why Stand to Reason was founded. That's why we continue. And now our commitment to helping you grow in what we call the foundations of an ambassador, knowledge, wisdom, and character, has just gotten easier. Our new ABC Studies, that's Ambassador Basic Curriculum, gives you important information on presenting and defending your faith. In these three self-directed studies, we'll cover the groundwork of how you can be an agent of change for Christ. That includes tactics in defending your faith and in-depth information on sensitive topics like abortion, homosexuality, religious pluralism, relativism, and evolution. The ABC studies are designed with busy people in mind, so you'll see maximum results in minimum time. You'll be amazed how quickly you'll be ready to take a stand as a follower of Christ. We'll even certify you as an ambassador when you're finished. Now, to find out more about the ABCs, the Ambassador Basic Curriculum, call us today, 1-800, the number 2, and the word reason. That's 1-800-2-REASON, or visit on the web at str.org. Looking for reliable information on current issues like same-sex marriage or embryonic stem cell research? Or you just in need of some clear thinking on something that has you confused? This is Greg Kokel with a suggestion about a quick way to get the knowledge you're searching for right now. Before you search the web, log on to str.org. You'll find sound analysis, careful commentary on the issues that challenge you as a Christian thinker, issues right out of the headlines, issues on the top of the list in public debate. Take a few moments to browse. Topics range from ethical issues like partial birth abortion to the theological debate about faith and works and everything in between. From our radio archives to advanced online training to our speakers, bios, and schedules, you'll find it easy to get the answers you're looking for. You'll come away from str.org with the accurately informed mind of a good ambassador for Christ. You'll also learn the tactics to help persuade others of the truth behind your convictions. And don't leave without registering as an ambassador. It's free, and it gives you complete access to everything on the site. 
I'm convinced that your visit to str.org will equip you, challenge you, and help you to take a stand for truth. Try it today. That's str.org. Lost your mind, friends? Well, you can find it right here at Stand to Reason every weekend. Greg Coco, your host. And my guest this hour, Ben Witherington III, uh, author, of, uh, author of over 30 books uh, dealing with um, New Testament and, uh, in particular, our concern today with the historical reliability of the New Testament accounts, uh, especially in opposition to and response to books like Jesus Interrupted, Revealing the Hidden Contradictions in the Bible by Bart Ehrman. Uh, this is third book. Uh, his first book was on textual criticism. Many people have noticed this, uh, uh, Ben, I mean, are familiar with this, um, misquoting Jesus. We won't get into that. But he was actually writing um, within his ken, as it were, at the time, uh, uh, being being a student of, of that particular discipline uh, and also a student of Bruce Metzger. Uh, these last two books, it seems like he has gone outside of his area of expertise, but is still trading on the uh, the, the the high view people have of him based on the first book. Uh, that's true. I mean, his doctoral dissertation was turned into a book called The Orthodox Corruption of Scripture. Mm. And the essential thesis of that book was that there were copiers or scribes who uh, theologically altered the manuscripts that they were copying uh, to serve their own theological purposes. Mm -hmm. Now, this is not new news. There were good scribes and bad scribes. Yes, there were those kind of people who were going to doctor the evidence in favor of their pet theories and Mm -hmm. doctors. Where have we heard this before? Preachers do it. All kinds of people do it. Um, So, you know, this, this was not new news. But he presented it in such a way as if it supported a sort of broad-scale critique Mm -hmm. of the way New Testament manuscripts were copied by Christians in general, Mm -hmm. with the implication that there are no trustworthy traditions, we don't know what the original text said, and so on. I mean, that's where that kind of whole text criticism argument was yeah. going. You know, it's cu- curious. We had Mark D. Roberts, who I, I think you might do- know in your yeah, field. Yeah, we're good friends. Yeah, uh, on talking about that issue. And he says the irony of Bart Ehrman's book in that particular case is he points out the problems, and then he offers the the textual solutions based on the best, best textual evidence, which is basically the kinds of solutions that have been offered for years on these uh, fairly well-known to those on a little bit on the inside. You don't even have to be that much to know this. A lot of times these problems are in the margin of your, your better Bibles. And uh, and so therefore he demonstrates even in his own book that uh, that Jesus hasn't been misquoted, that we do have a reliable uh, documents or uh, characterizations of what was actually written. Uh, and he, he, he uses textual criticism and the skills there to, to fix the problem and show us what the original probably said. So, And, and again, I mean, the, the real person he's targeting is a fundamentalist, the kind of fundamentalist that would say this particular translation of the Bible is inerrant. Mm-hmm. Like the <laughs> that King kind, James. That kind of person. Right. I mean, that's the kind of argument he's trying to deconstruct. The mm-hmm. truth is that his argument really doesn't touch the approach or faith of most evangelicals or their evangelical scholars that would be supporting their point of view. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's, it's a critique of stuff that uh, only a really very narrow fundamentalist would uh, get 
get crazy about. Yeah, it's unfortunate, though. There's a lot of those folks out there that have been taken down by these writings, and, you know, you just kind of wish that, that the, the rank-and-file Christian would just get a little more education in their own convictions so that they aren't so easily swayed. Let's look at a couple of things here, Ben, uh, sure. talking with Ben Witherington here now about Bart Ehrman's recent book, um, Jesus Interrupted, uh, The Alleged Contradictions. Um did the women at the tomb, Jesus' resurrection, did they meet an angel or a man? That's well, one of the contradictions. Yeah, and, and this is a silly one, because if you look in the Old Testament, for example, in Daniel, uh, angels are frequently called men in the Old Testament. This is nothing new. A good example of this would be in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, when the sons of God came down and mated with the daughters of men. Now, that phrase, sons of God, there, is a reference to angels. Mm-hmm. This is what precipitated the, the judgment on the earth in the first place, mm-hmm. the mixing of two different orders of creation. Mm-hmm. So uh, the truth of the matter is... Or just even Sodom, them, Sodom and Gomorrah, there you've got the, 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 the angels who were so convincingly men that the other men of Sodom and Gomorrah wanted to have sex with them. I- exactly. That's, I mean, there are plenty of these kinds of examples in the Old Testament. So, in other words, it was an angel that appeared like a man, which is the same thing we read everywhere. And so sometimes... In, in the addition angel... to which, the word angel comes from the Greek word angelos, mm-hmm. and it doesn't mean a supernatural being. It just means a messenger. messenger uh-huh. It can be a supernatural being. It can be a human being. Uh-huh. A human being can, a mess- can be a messenger. So, I mean, I, I, there's not... That's a really odd one to try to make a big bone of contention. So if, if, if one gospel records an angel and another records a man, that's not a contradiction. It's, it's just a standard way of, of, of describing uh, what could have happened there. And it really depends on who the audience was. You know, if, if you've got a largely Jewish audience, uh, they're going to understand that these mm-hmm. both refer to the same thing. If you've got a Greco-Roman audience like Luke has, you'd better call them angels, mm-hmm. because otherwise, be uh, you know, a Greek or a Roman might think, oh, well, there was a man standing there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about uh, the uh, the genealogy of Jesus? Now, the, you say one account in Matthew, you see another account in Luke. Mm-hmm. And uh, this has never really troubled me much, but it's troubled a lot of people, and some people really try to make hay out of this. It hasn't troubled me, partly because, you know, it... it this is a 2,000-year-old record, and you wonder, like, did, were, were the earliest readers so stupid that they couldn't see the difference between the Luke genealogy and the Matthew genealogy? Of right. course they saw the difference, and they understood that there wasn't a problem. And I know there's a couple of different ways to explain it, but that sure. to me is, I mean, the people at the time were certainly smart enough to see if there was really a problem there, but they're not. So what, what's, what does well, Bart Ehrman make in, of in, this? Yeah, in in, in short summary, uh, what we have in Matthew is a royal Jewish genealogy. And what you need to know about that is it's a patrilineal X begat Y begat Z, etc., etc. Father to father to father, right. It's a a descending genealogy, and it's a royal genealogy. And part of the tradition about royal genealogies is that they are not exhaustive. Mm -hmm. You leave some of the skeletons in the closet. You can leave out (laughs) whole generations, and that's perfectly okay. Well, Jesus was the son of David, for example. Well, in exactly. our terminology. Yeah, right. yeah, well, exactly. And the son of Abraham, never mind that. Right, that's right. <laughs> so, you know, the truth of the matter is that if you have studied ancient royal genealogies, this one works fine with that, and it follows those kinds of conventions. And okay? so how, how do you manage Luke, though? Now, Luke is a very different... It's uh, a totally different thing. This is fact, a genealogy that a Greek or Roman person 
would be interested in. It's ascending rather than descending. Right. The point is to get Jesus all the way back to being the son of Adam. Mm-hmm. That's the point. Son of Adam, son of God. Well, it also seems to go back to David uh, through a different one of David's sons, the mm-hmm. one through Solomon, the, the next through... Uh, Nathan, or I can't remember who it was, but I mean that strikes me as being the genealogy of Mary and not the genealogy of De- of, uh, of Joseph. Right, and that's where I would also I think that's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mary is a Davidite, just as Joseph is. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the other thing that most people don't realize, and that is that if a man in early Judaism adopted a son, okay. He was entitled to the man's genealogy, even though he wasn't literally right, his son. Right, and that would so be there's Joseph. Not, there's not a problem with it being Joseph's genealogy at all, right? Because you got that with the adoption papers, right. so to speak. And, and because obviously Joseph was not the physical father of Jesus, given right. the virgin birth, right? So we've got two separate genealogies showing the line of Jesus on his father's side legally and on his mother's side physically, all going back to David, and in one case, all the way back to Adam. That's right, and that's also why they both had to go back to the city of David to register, because right. they were both Davidites. Both of them, right. and so both there's of them were. No contradiction. A very simple, straightforward explanation, and no contradiction. What, uh, what about the, um, uh, the, the canon itself? I mean, the, the comment you refer to, the thing problem you refer to, is the pseudonymity of the canon. That is, there are a right. lot of, piece, of, 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 of biblical writings that they, they, they don't themselves contain the name of the author. What's right. up with that? He makes, Airman makes a big deal about yeah, that. Yeah, all right. Let, let's, let's deal with this. First of all, ancient documents were written on papyri. And um, the way that most ancient documents were identified was not within the scroll, but by a toe tag on the end of the scroll. Mm-hmm. Be, why was that? Because you had little pigeonholes in which you put the papyri, and if you wanted to know what was what, no. every piece of papyrus looks the same as the other. Right. So you had what I would call a little name tag or a toe oh, tag. Oh, a toe tag now is like on a corpse is what you refer. I got Correct. to. I, I missed the imagery at first. Okay, well, that's it. exactly right. That, it's, uh-huh. it's like looking in the cold locker in cold case yeah. and finding out who it is. He's got a tag on his toe, right? <laughs> well, exactly. That's the way ancient documents were de- dealt with. So it's it's not really a problem that, say, in the Gospel of Mark or Luke uh, or Matthew, the name of the author is not actually part of the document itself. I mean, the inspired document starts at verse 1. Right. The header, the header is the attribution, mm-hmm. according to Matthew, according to Mark, according right. to Luke, according mm-hmm. to John. And that attribution would have been added at the point that there were multiple Gospels. Mm-hmm. Because you don't need to say it's the Gospel according to X if there are no other Gospels. Right. Uh-huh. You see? So, I mean, that's, that, that was something that was added to clarify which Gospel it was when we had multiple Gospels. Mm-hmm. Now, there's no reason whatsoever for the early church to have made up the idea that a non-eyewitness, non-apostle like Luke, or even Mark, who's not one of the Twelve, wrote Gospels. There's no reason. They are minor figures in the New Testament. They're not amongst the Twelve, okay? So there's no reason why the church would have attributed Gospels to them unless there was a good historical reason to do that. In other words, if, if Mark was really recording, he was a companion of Peter, if somebody wanted to invent a, a, a big-name author for it, it would have been better for them to, to invent Peter's name than Mark. Of course. Yeah. We should have had a Gospel by Peter. Mm-hmm. Absolutely we should have. Or a Gospel by Andrew. But we don't. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not our earliest text. Why? 
because the earliest Christians really cared about who wrote what. Mm-hmm. Now, let me deal very briefly. With yeah, we got about of, we got about forty-five seconds. Okay, Sorry. pseudonymity. First of all, an anonymous document is not a pseudonymous document. Hmm. The the sermon that we call Hebrews is an anonymous document. Right. So we can debate who that was by, but that's not pseudonymity. Pseudonymity refers to a falsely attributed a f- author. A forgery. A forgery. Right. And let me tell you now, first century persons got in a really big snit if somebody claimed that they wrote something uh, by somebody else that, that they didn't write. Mm-hmm. Galen, the famous doctor, uh, wrote a separate book saying, these are the books that I wrote. Don't believe claims by X, Y, or Z mm-hmm. that that's by me. Right. So there was a concern in the first century about forgery and using somebody else's name. And uh, I don't think there are any forgeries in the New Testament. Well, look, at, let me recommend, there are so many things we could continue talking about, uh, Ben, uh, but let me just recommend again uh, your book that deals most directly with this. Uh, and if there's a different title, you can tell me that too. What Have They Done With Jesus? Ben Witherington III is the author. Um, Harper uh, Harper One, would be the division of Harper Collins, I guess, uh, is the publisher there. Uh, the website, go to this blog, uh, feast from it on these issues if you want more up-to-date information, benwitherington.com, spelled just how it sounds. you have a new title out uh, on this issue other than... Well, I've got, a, I've got quite a few, but the one that I would point people to that would answer a lot of their questions about the origins of the Bible is called The Living Word of God. The Living Word I would, of God. I really God. would recommend for them to read The Living Word of God, and that will tell them a lot about the issues of canon and all those kinds of things. I am going to get that myself because I don't have it in my library, Living Word of God. Who published it? Uh, Baylor University Press. Okay, it's going to be great. Thank you, Ben. It's a pleasure talking with You're you this, this afternoon. All right. Bye bye now. Ben Weatherington the third. What have they done with Jesus and the Living Word of God? If you're concerned about books like uh, Bart Ehrman's Jesus Interrupted or Misquoting Jesus or other things like that by other authors, Ben Weatherington is a sensational source to go to. BenWeatherington.com is his blog site. All right, hour number two just ahead of us. Uh, had an interesting conversation in a restaurant the other night. I'll be glad to tell you about that when I return on Stand the Reason.